Season 2, Episode 1, Dr. Jeremy Balenson and Experience On Demand. The VR Podcast. Your realm for all things immersion tech in education and business. Prepare to be transported. Today is an exciting day for the VR world and for our listeners. Today, we have Dr. Jeremy Balenson. He's a Stanford professor, and he's the founder of the Virtual Human Interaction Lab there, and he's the author of Experience on Demand, what virtual reality is, how it works, and what it can do. And I'm so excited. Thank you, Dr. Balenson, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Great to meet you all by phone. Yes, yes. So um, I kind of want to start off by um, maybe talking about what the response has been so far to your book. I, we're kind of approaching a year from its release. Is that about right? Yeah, it's a, it, it's been a year, and the, I, I, there's kind of a bifurcated response from from those who are trying to get into VR. Um, they love it as a resource for those who work in the VR space. They still uh, learn things that they hadn't known about. Um, and so from, from those that are constructively entering the space, uh, I've, it's been a, a really nice response. And, and it's been just awesome to seeing how people are using it, whether it's teachers or soldiers or uh, people in business who are you know, kind of using it as a text to, to begin. Where the response has been confusing to me has been, you know, there's a general narrative in our country and, and in the world uh, about how Silicon Valley and, and social media in particular is this kind of dark force that's manipulating us. And uh, it's been frustrating for me seeing VR and my book kind of get lumped into that narrative. So when the book came out in January, it was reviewed by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the San Francisco Chronicle, Nature, uh, the Wall Street Journal, and, 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 and just about every review you know, the, the the book came out right around when the Russia stuff began, uh, the Russia slash uh, Facebook stuff. Uh, and as you know, the first chapter begins with, you know, describing Mark Zuckerberg's yeah. visit to the lab when he was evaluating <laughs> Oculus. So I think that has something to do with it. But the reviews, basically, they say, balance and you're this hippie from California. You, you, you think about these things about education and communication and empathy, but really it's going to be used for propaganda and for all these ill effects. And, uh, you know, it's been frustrating. It was frustrating for me to see the intensity uh, of, the, of, of these angry people that were accusing me of not and acknowledging the downsides, as you guys know, chapter two is all about the downsides of VR. And so it's not something that I, that I take lightly. And, and I actually see myself as a fairly balanced voice in this space. But it was surprising to see the reaction from the general public and the journalists and, and the politicians being, you know, you're not taking the negatives of VR seriously enough. I will say from from my experience, because I tend to go way overboard and I love VR so much, I will say that what I've read from you, uh, not just in your books, but the interviews you've done, the posts you make in social media, you are very balanced and you actually, <laughs> you, uh, you actually help me keep it in check with keeping virtual reality in reality or keeping it in check. So yeah, I can understand where that frustration would be there. Um, 
because I think that your insights, especially in experience on demand, were just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And I couldn't recommend it enough. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, and I, I also, um, I, I think, you know, in, in few years, um, when other VR books have fallen by the wayside, I think people will still be reaching for this one and it will be viewed as one of the, the sort of important texts that anybody in the space is going to have to read. Um, and, and I, I, I really think that, uh, it, it, this is the type of book that will stand the test of time um, and will have really captured uh, some of the things that are um, way ahead of their time. Um, you know, and, I, and I'm looking at it from somebody who was in a, in a college position now in a, a K-12. Um, I do think some of the ideas in here will, will, will stand the test of time. So um, I'm, I'm, what I'm interested in is, Jeremy, how you ended up, how did you start and how did you sort of get into virtual reality? So my journey to VR begins, so the first time I ever tried VR, I was interviewing for grad school at Berkeley, uh, and this was 1994, uh, and I had a day to kill, and I took uh, took BART into the city, and um, on the Embarcadero, there was a, an arcade that was demoing VR, uh, you know, for 25 bucks for a 15-minute pop. Uh, this is back in 1994, and I played a game called Dactyl Nightmare, which is, um, you know, uh, uh, it was a system that had head tracking and hand tracking. Um, we were probably running at 10 or 15 hertz. The tracking was off by probably <laughs> centimeters, not millimeters. Uh, the latency was probably a quarter second. The graphics were, uh, of course, very blocky and, and, and not defined. But uh, the thing crashed twice while I did it in 15 minutes. But it was still enough to make me just jaw drop, make my jaw drop and just, wow, being mentally transported to a different place. What a, what a mind blowing different experience that was compared to anything I'd ever tried, you know, from a, from a piece of media before. And um, so that's the first time I tried it. But then I went to Northwestern, I got my PhD in cognitive science, where I was basically running experiments on how the brain works and trying to build computer models to account for how people make decisions, how they perceive arguments, things, things of that nature. Um, and in 1999, I reread because I'd read this book the first time when I was in high school. But for those that have read the book called Neuromancer, you know, that probably a lot of listeners will understand you kind of have to read it a second time to really get it. It's a, it takes a while to really understand Gibson's world. And I'd read Neuromancer for the second time in 99. Uh, and, you know, for those that haven't read this book, you know, William Gibson writes in the late 70s, it's published in the early 80s. And it's just mind blowing about what the world will look like when we've got avatars in virtual space and how it changes everything from commerce to, you know, how people think about what it is to have a body. And it just kind of blew my mind. And, and I was in this position where I was surrounded by other people in the AI space and we were trying to build true intelligence. And I didn't think we were going to get there for some time. And in VR, what you do is you fake it, right? You're building these avatars that, and these embodied agents that feel so real. And so I said, you know, maybe I, I'm going to stop trying to do real AI and I'm going to go and build a perceptually realistic fake occlude of it. And um, I applied for a job at UC Santa Barbara to study the psychology of VR uh, and was lucky enough to get that job. And so in 99, I left my field of cognitive science and I got a postdoc at UC Santa Barbara where I learned how to build the hardware because the hardware back then, as you can imagine, you know, we had to you know, calibrate <laughs> yeah. many cameras uh, all the time, how to do the programming. You know, we were still using 3D Studio Max to make 
uh, 3D models, but we were integrating them with with pretty much raw Python code. Uh, and then to, at the same time, I moved to ask kind of larger societal questions. I wasn't looking about how the brain was structured, and I was looking more about how does communication work? How does training work? Uh, how does, how, how do, what does it mean to be entertained in VR? How does this construct of presence? And um, so I, I proceeded to do that for four years. And then in 2003, uh, I applied for a job to be a professor in the Department of Communication at Stanford and uh, was stunned to hear I got an interview. and. You know, luck, I, I somehow managed to get this job, which is my dream job, and I, every day I love it, and I'm still here today. That's, that's awesome. Wow. That's a great story. <laughs> that is so awesome. Um, and I remember those experiences back in the 90s, the VR, and um, I, I, I don't remember being as captivated as you were, so kudos to you being so uh, open-minded for the future. That's, that's awesome. Um, you know, I I, I I wanted to love it. You know, sometimes when you want to love something, that helps. And I, yes, I get it. I'm an uh, that's that's I'm an Apple person. So <laughs> you got to try hard out, there. I, I got some things I had to try harder than others. So I understand that sentiment. Um, so you, it, your book, the thing that that I love about it is it's very accessible. Hmm. to all sorts of readers. I mean, it doesn't matter what your experience is with VR. The book is very accessible to readers. And one of the things that I love is when you uh, kind of go into talking about um, VR presence or having presence. And yeah, you ha kind of have a little comical thing there on some of the components. But could you talk about what, what VR presence is and how that helps translate into good experiences in VR? Yeah, so the book is called Experience on Demand, and, and there's a reason for that. When VR is done well, you're not thinking about pixels or field of view or latency or update rate or any of these constructs. It feels like something's happening to you. It's you're actually doing something. And so when we, you know, when when I first started working in this field, you know, as an academic, we have to publish, and before I could publish these studies that show you can use VR for empathy and you can use it as a, as a communication tool. Before I got there, I had to basically replicate a lot of old social psychological findings showing that people treat VR as if it were real. So in other words, if I put an avatar in the room, will you maintain its personal space? Will you look at it in the eye, but not for too long? And so I had to go through this brute force process to basically to show that when VR is done well, you're basically using the, the evolutionary mechanisms that you have to, you know, how do you respond to a human? Because the brain hasn't evolved yet to really understand what an avatar is, uh, you basically use what you have, which is I treat that as, as if it's a real person and so you know we always come back to you know when we're thinking about VR design you know have you designed this experience to let people use their body to walk around something to turn their head uh, in a way that's natural and, and it's really about getting this out of a media experience and turning it into an actual one I love yeah. that I mean James if I might like no go ahead. Um, you know this idea of experience Jeremy it's 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 wonderful on this idea of presence and in the book you mentioned about how VR can really um, democratize learning and training if someone is willing to put the work in. And once everyone has access to this, that opportunity then exists, equity. Um, we're all educators. Uh, we all sit at, at schools, K-12 schools right now. And given uh, the whale example of creating false memories and as educators, uh, our goal of transferring knowledge into students so that they can become um, just uh, contributors to society, 
Where do you see VR uh, really aiding in that effort? Yeah, so I, you know, I think a lot about when we shouldn't use VR. Mm. And, you know, the, the, the model for me for the next, you know, three-ish years, you know, let's, let's not talk about 10 years out, but for the next handful of years, I believe we should use VR in classrooms, you know, as a field trip. You know, so, uh, and, and first, let me be very clear, I still want you to go on those physical field trips. You know, when I was in middle school, we went to Washington, D.C., and I can still remember a couple things from that trip that were just super special and, and that resonated. I still want those to happen, but I think we should be taking field trips every day. Uh, in other words, there's a reason why in, in chemistry you do a lab because you get to do something. And for other things, it's not as obvious what, you know, for other subjects, it's not as obvious, well, what, what is that thing you're going to do? And, you know, let's take art history. You know, no one should ever look at a 2D image of a statue ever again from a, on a slide, right? You should be able to be walking around this and getting the proper perspective and getting to do what they do when they visit it in the museum. And uh, But the other aspect of that is that it doesn't need to be three hours long. Right. I mean, you know, the most, you know, the, the dean of the School of Education here at Stanford is a guy named Dan Schwartz and Dan, um, you know, in education. Uh, so because one of my appointments at Stanford, I'm a visit, I'm a, I have an appointment in the School of Ed here. One of the things that that if you read through any of the academic CVs of, of, of professors in ed schools, you know, it's all about constructivist learning and, and learning by doing. And, and, and this is the, the model that really drives how we should think about pedagogy. And, and of course, we all agree with that. However, how do you resolve that with the fact that on a college campus, 95% of what teaching is, is people sitting in a lecture hall listening and scribbling stuff down. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, it's, it's a strange confluence where everyone, all the people that teach here, you know, we all have these theories of, of, of hands-on constructivist learning, but the classes at Stanford are, are lectures, right? Um, and, and, and I think we can bring that model down to, you know, K through 12. And I, and I believe that VR should replace a teacher. Teachers still need to teach and talk and to walk around the rooms, but everyone gets a field trip. And that field trip is a really special thing. They get to experience something and, and, and then they can move on. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think that's yeah. probably one of the reasons why Expeditions was so popular. It, it wasn't just because it was the first entry point into education. It's because it made the most sense, mm -hmm. right? It, it just, it fell right in with, oh yeah, field trips have benefits. Oh yeah, I can take them and view these things. Um, now, granted, it probably wasn't the uh, the, the greatest experience uh, just based on, you know, what devices and stuff are out there, but um, certainly it has some benefit. And, you know, thinking of things like that, like Google expeditions and things that we're starting to see in education, especially even further as far down as, you know, first and second grade down to that, I guess that age that Google has put out there. Um, how do you see VR kind of saturating those areas, especially the ones that are kind of under that magical age of 13 that a lot of VR companies are throwing out there right now. So, so one data point that I've discovered since the book came out is there's a company called ZSpace. Are you familiar with, with them? Yes. So ZSpace, they make these laptops where you wear 3D glasses and you hold a hand tracker uh, that allows you to manipulate with objects, but it's got head tracking, so you can move your head to move around these objects that are basically 
out in space between your head and the laptop screen. So it's uh, and it's super interactive. And I was I was stunned to learn that there in north of 1,000 schools and over a million students in the United States have learned uh, on a Z Z space laptop. So. Uh, that's a model where if you think about what are the constraints are in the classroom, you know, putting someone in goggles where they can't see anyone else, you got to think about safety issues, uh, hygiene, things like that. Uh, it kind of gets around a lot of those. Um, the other thing that, you know, this is kind of a, a bug turned into a feature, you know, one of the hard parts about all storytelling in VR is obviously you can't direct attention. Um, in other words, if there's some really important thing you need to be looking at, it's the, you know, whether it's a sidelong glance in a, in a story about who's the bad guy or if it's about, you know, watching those molecules in, in a chemistry uh, lesson. You know, if you're not looking in the right spot, you're going to miss the action and this plagues all of us who design VR content. You know, the, 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 the bug into a feature with the Z-Space Z laptop, you're basically you always have to be looking at the screen, but uh, it, there is a reduction in presence because you're not blocked out from the physical world, but boy, that object, you're actually looking at the thing you're supposed to be. Um, and so they found that to be super useful as kind of an intermediary step before, you know, VR can, you know, uh, be cheap and, and effective enough that you can use it at scale. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And experiences like that, that aren't necessarily um, head, like head mounted display type um, VR experiences or even like AR those are definitely, from what I see, are the things that are the most accessible to even our smallest learners. Um, like I think about companies like Merge that have come out with like the Merge Cube to act as mm -hmm. little triggers for AR. Those those types of things really bring a good immersive experience to kindergartners, first grade, where they're not necessarily having to <laughs> isolate and uh, I guess seclude themselves from the real world. Yeah, I, I, you know, we should use the right tool for the right job, and and you know, I've been I've been a VR guy for twenty years, and I spend all day long thinking about it. But you guys would be stunned by how how often somebody will pitch me an idea uh, about some experience, uh, some media type, you know, lesson, whether it's about science learning or empathy, and and I say, well, you know what, that's a great idea, and it's going to work brilliantly with a two D video. Go shoot it, and then put it up on the web. You know, it's it's not a, not everything needs to be in VR. Now, there's so many great things in VR. The, the, you know, our job is to focus on on the low-hanging fruit, the things that if you're going to go full-blown VR, that it really earns its keep. That you know, that it's worth you know spending the time to strap on that equipment and to have a spotter so you don't smash into the wall when you're running. And you know, those contexts, you know, they do exist. But if the context doesn't require that full-blown 18 degrees of freedom immersion, let's not uh, stick it in there. That's it for part one of our chat with Dr. Jeremy Balenson. If you liked our conversation today, don't forget to check out part two and our other episodes as well. If you want to check out his book, the newly printed and paperback book, go to experienceondemandbook.com to get more info on how to get your hands on the hardback version, the paperback version, uh, digital book, and even the audio book version of this awesome read. And we also want to hear from you. Make sure to use hashtag VR podcast to ask questions or comment about this episode, immersion technology, or even about the virtual reality podcast.
Want to hear more or connect with us? Subscribe to the podcast and find us on social media at The VR Podcast.